Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Concerning spiritual things, I do not want you to be unaware. Because being unaware or ignorant of these things can lead to complete and utter destruction, whether you have good intentions or not. Being unaware means that you could possibly be partaking in the worship of demons. And this is precisely what was happening in Corinth, and we've seen it addressed since chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll start right where we left off last week at verse 2. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. Maybe seated. Now, probably most of you are aware of what's ahead in these next few chapters, 12, 13, and 14. In fact, some of you may be ready for us to just jump into it head first. And actually, I am pretty eager myself, but Pastor Mike and I both agree that taking our time and having smaller bite-sized pieces of scripture will be much more profitable for teaching in these chapters. We really want you to understand the context as well as the attitude in which these statements are being made. And quite honestly, if you were in a Pentecostal or charismatic church, these first few verses are likely to be completely skimmed over without any regard uh, or depth. And, and they set the tone for the entire uh, part of this letter that's going to be addressed. And honestly, they may even skip over it altogether, which is actually something that I've witnessed, and I know others have witnessed this as well. Um, myself, both in a charismatic school as well as a, as well as a charismatic church, um, and lines were blurred, and the twisting of Scripture was frequent. And in all honesty, I don't remember Scripture ever actually being read aside from a few hand-picked verses that went along with some moral story that was being told. And it was all based on phony experiences rather than the truth of God's Word. And as we read in 1 Timothy this morning, it feels more like doctrines of demons once your eyes have been opened. Counterfeits. Now when the Lord inspires Paul to write a statement such as, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant, it means that there is something vitally important here. It means that we should take notice concerning spirituals or spiritual things and spiritual gifts. And in order to find out exactly why we should take notice, we have to dig a little deeper into verse 2 and 3. And in verse 2, Paul starts with a reference to who the Corinthians once were, before they came to know Christ, before they were Christians. So verse 2 you know that when you were pagans, and I'll stop there. We've, we've all heard this word pagan before. You've heard us preach on it. 
you read it in your own Bible. Uh, but it's important that we truly understand that what the word means, and um, so that we don't disassociate ourselves from the word as well as disassociating ourselves from the text. Because I don't know about you, but I once thought that a pagan was someone who was part of a creepy cult out in the woods. Um, but biblically, the word is actually far more broad of a term than you might think. The word literally means a foreigner, or specifically a, a different from a different tribe or a different nation. And in the original Greek, the word ethne is where we get our word ethnicity from. Uh, now, there's here's there's an interesting part about this word ethne. It's translated three different ways in the context, depending on your translation. There's pagan, there's heathen. And then there's also Gentile. Now here's an interesting point. When Jesus says, go making disciples of all nations, that same word is used there for nation. So at one point, whenever, whenever we're talking about Gentiles, there are two classes of people. There was Israel, and then there was the Gentiles. Of course, until Christ came, he formed his church, which is the body of Christ, and then a third class of people was formed. And this is one of the reasons why the Corinthians had such a difficult time. They couldn't grasp this idea of no longer being under the law as, as the Jews um, and having to refrain from sinful idolatry and lusts of paganism. So you see, before Christ. You were never born again. There was no such thing as born again. You were either born a Jew or born a Gentile. And you could be converted from Gentile to Jew, but, um, but it was pretty simple. Now, whether you were Jew or Gentile, heathen or pagan, you must be born again to be a Christian. So you see, we, we cannot disassociate ourselves from this text because we were once pagans. We were once heathens. We were once Gentiles. But we were born again to walk a new life in Christ Jesus, and we were washed and sanctified. We were justified, just as these brothers and sisters were in Corinth. So Paul first states that he does not want them to be unaware or ignorant concerning these spiritual things. Um, not just spiritual gifts, but all things spiritual. Then he acknowledges that he knows as well as they know where they came from. They were so let's read on through verse 2 and see where he's going with it. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray. We'll hold there again. This term, led astray, is actually not a synonym for misled, as you may think. It's, it's not when you were pagans, you were misled. In fact, it's a totally different meaning in the original text. The Greek word here is apago. And, and I want you to hear how this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. So you don't have to follow along with these because they're short little verses, but I, I just want you to hear them. Matthew 27, verse 1 to 2. Now when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and here's that word, led him away to be delivered to, the, to Pilate, the governor. Again, in Matthew 27, 31, after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him 
and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. That word, apago. Luke 22:66. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to the council chamber. I've got about four more, but I, I figure you guys get it. Apago means that you are a prisoner. You are in custody, and you are held against your will, probably about to be executed. This was the proper context of verse 2. And if you were so eager to jump into the spiritual gifts portion of this letter, you'd miss it completely. So let's continue with all of verse 2 now. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols. However, you were led. This word mute, it, it sometimes is translated as dumb, but it's not dumb the way we use it today. It's the old definition, meaning speechless or tongue-tied. So Paul literally means idols that were unable to speak. Now, the second led in this verse, there was, you were led astray, and now, and then, however, you were led. So the second Led is agaste, which means influence or enticed, and it can even mean seduced. So let's look at that verse again in its entirety and in the proper context. Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, so before you were Christians, before you were born again, you were led astray, you were taken captive, you were held as a prisoner to mute idols, idols that could not speak. Yet, however, you were led, you were enticed, you were still seduced by them. And we're no different. We were slaves, and we knew no better then. So let's, let's talk a little bit about idols. The Greek word for idol is idola, and it simply means image or reflection, such as a mirror or a bowl of water. So, uh, so, it's just the reflection. And when we think of idols, we often think of someone worshipping a statue, but that's actually not the truth. The statue was just the image or the reflection of what was being worshipped. For instance, Juno was the goddess that we talked about last week. The goddess, and, and she was in charge of protecting the wealth of Rome. Her temple was where the Roman coins were minted with her face on them. She was depicted as elegant and attractive and wearing expensive clothing and a crown. Then there was Athena. She was the goddess of war and wisdom who often was often accompanied by an owl and she was painted on the shields and banners of Roman soldiers for protection. And her pet owl is still used in schools and universities today as a symbol of wisdom. She was depicted as an armor-clad feminist warrior. Then there was Neptune, or also known as Poseidon. He was the god of the sea, and he was painted on Roman ships and their sails to protect them as they navigated the deadly oceans. He was always depicted with an over-exaggerated physique and uh, always had exposed women by his side. And then we all remember Aphrodite. This is the goddess of love. 
beauty, fertility, sex, desire, prostitution, and even wine. I can't even describe to you how she is depicted for obvious reasons. But there was a temple devoted to her in Corinth, right there in the city. There was Apollo. He was the god of music and healing. Artemis, the go goddess of the hunt. Vulcan, the god of fire and metalwork. Vesta, the goddess of home and domestic life. Hermes, the god of trade, communication, and travel. Ceres, the goddess of agriculture, just to name a few. So you see pagans create idols, or gods, for their every need and their every desire. Remember, the idol is just the reflection of the god. And yes, these idols have names, but make no mistake, their god was not Juno, Athena, Neptune, or Aphrodite. Their god was wealth. Their god was wisdom. Their god was protection and prosperity and love and beauty, fertility, sex, desire, prostitution, and even wine. Their god was music and health and trade and agriculture. And they were drinking from the cup of demons. And they still are today. Just looks, the reflection just looks a little different. You see, Paul reminds the Corinthians that before they were Christians, they were taken captive by mute idols. And although they couldn't speak, they were still, those idols were still enticing. They were still seductive. The question is how? How can a, a stone statue be seductive or enticing? Well, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was looking for all kinds of pictures that I could use to represent idols, but I couldn't find anything other than hypersexualized statues and paintings. That's why you see a bunch of old columns up here. And I wanted to show you images of each of the idols that I just went through. However, I could not find anything suitable or appropriate. You see, Satan and his demons are predictable, and if you know what you're looking for, you can spot it a mile away. But unfortunately, men and women today still fall for the very schemes that the devil have all the devil's always used. Women are enticed or seduced by beauty and youth and power and strength and wealth that equalizes them to their male counterparts which is how all these female idols are depicted. Men, on the other hand, are enticed or seduced by the female body and sexual imagery, which you'll find exposed on both male and female statues and paintings, along with hearing their stories of these heroic male gods who could have any woman that they want. That was enticing to young men in those days. And those are the same ideas that are shoved in our faces today, or at least up until recently, because now it's the gay, lesbian, and trans agenda, which Rome and Greece certainly embraced as well, and they fell not long afterward. But just as Solomon wrote, there is nothing new under the sun. We can expect history to repeat itself. I think we all agree that it is. But you see, Genesis 3 teaches us that Satan is the deceiver that twists the word of God. 
And Matthew 4 teaches us that Satan is the tempter who uses sinful desires and the fallen nature of man to seduce men. John 8.44 teaches us that Satan is the father of lies and is skilled in manipulation. And 1 Peter 5.8 teaches us that Satan is the devourer who prowls the earth like a lion. Satan knows our fallen nature and he knows scripture. He will exploit our weaknesses every opportunity he gets. So, are you drinking from the cup of demons? Are you participating in a pagan form of worship, the worship of demons? Hinduism, that's a religion we've all heard of, it's a polytheistic pagan religion, meaning they, along with the Romans, had multiple gods. And in, in Hinduism, all of these gods have their own yoga pose or gesture. Here's a description of what yoga is used for that I found on a website of a local yoga studio. And I quote, As a way of connecting to, revering, and paying respects to deities, yoga postures represent not just what the deity looks like, but also everything they stand for. As we practice the posture, we put our focus on the energy and the essence of the deity and look to embody their qualities. Now, you can't tell me that's not worship. If you've ever heard of the downward dog, that's a yoga move. That's one of the most popular ones that you'll, one of the basic ones. That pose connects to, reveres, and pays respects to or we can call it what it is, worships the sun. The tree pose worships the deity Vishnu. The dancer pose worships the deity Shiva. The warrior pose worships the deity Ganesha. And the list goes on and on. The most deceptive part of this is that in the Hindu religion, all of these yoga poses, have, which have been around for hundreds of years, um, they all are named after the deity itself. The names only changed once it began to gain popularity here in the West to make something more palatable, I guess. But remember, an idol is just the reflection of the God that is being worshipped. And in yoga, you become the reflection. You become the embodiment of that God. You become the idol. And this belief that you can reach a higher or better version of yourself through a higher knowledge or a secret wisdom is known as Gnosticism. And it's been around for thousands of years, but it's growing very popular today here in the U.S. It's the reason why the Enneagram has gained such popularity among Christians, despite its occult pagan roots. It promises to make you a better version of you through a higher knowledge or secret wisdom. Once again, putting you at the center. You become the idol. Folks, the only thing that can make us better is the work of sanctification of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That is it. 
These counterfeits take our desires, they take our wants, they take our needs, and then they, and then they promise to fulfill them, which takes our eyes off of Christ and draws it elsewhere. Drinking the cup. Demons. So Paul is saying, this is who you once were. You had an excuse then. You were lost. Your eyes and ears were closed, and you were being led by forces unbeknownst to you. Now let's look at verse 3a, so the first half of verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. Now Paul is most likely referring to an event uh, that had taken place in the church. And it isn't completely clear, but it's mostly agreed upon that this saying, Jesus is accursed, came from a Jew who was proclaiming to be prophesying or speaking by the Spirit of God. You see, this was a hard pill to swallow for some of the Jews, because Deuteronomy 21-23 teaches by the law that he who is hanged is accursed, accursed of God. So, Deuteronomy 21, verse 22, I'm sorry, chapter 21, verse 22-23, is this. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely, you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So, Paul even quotes this Old Testament scripture in Galatians chapter 3, 3, 13, which gives us a little bit more clarity. Starting in verse 10, he says, For as many as there are works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does, who does not abide by the things written, in the book of the law, to perform them. Verse 11 says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for right, the righteous man shall live by faith. Verse 12, However, the law is not of faith. And on the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 14, In order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, Jesus did become a curse, a curse, as he hung on the cross. But that was only until the debt was paid. Shouting, Jesus is a curse, is a clear twisting of scripture like we've read Satan likes to do. We already know that comes from the father of lies. You see, it's a common belief today that churches, their leaders, and the worship within the church is untouchable by Satan. And that likely comes from a, another twisting of scripture where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. However, all you have to do is turn on any mainstream church service, and you'll see for yourself that Satan spends a lot of time in church. But apparently some members of the Corinthian church have become so confused 
with this chaotic and perverse form of worship that they were allowing the Lord to be cursed within their own walls. And it would be a lot like someone coming in and sitting down and just shouting, GD, GD, GD. And us just letting them get away with it. Us just letting it continue. And it's hard to even fathom, because I can't even imagine it, but that's how crazy things had gotten in the church of Corinth. Just as Pastor Mike gave us a description of what it would be like last week to walk in the doors of the church of Corinth. And the weak men who were supposed to be the leadership in the church just let it, let it continue. And their excuse was that they thought this person was speaking from the Holy Spirit. They actually believed this person was standing up to prophesy. And the Holy Spirit was the one saying these things. They had absolutely no discernment. And the Corinthian leaders were used to having such fanatical, frenzied experiences, probably sound a little bit familiar, that they paid no attention to the content of the message given. So, I mean, you can, you can find YouTube videos of church services where people are on their hands and knees barking like dogs or making other animal noises. No discernment and pay no attention to the content of the message. And all believing that this was from the Holy Spirit. So Paul clears it up and he actually gives us a sort of test, for, for the Corinthians at least, to help them discern what is of the Holy Spirit and what is not. He makes it very clear and easy to understand. A person speaking with the Holy Spirit could never say Jesus is a curse. It could never happen. Now let's look at verse 3b. And no one can say, so the opposite of that, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, you might remember sitting in Sunday school, hearing talk about inviting Jesus into your heart, or making a decision for Christ, or just put your, your trust in Jesus, or repeat this prayer, and you'll be a Christian. See, the problem with all of these things is that these methods are totally unbiblical. And this verse alone proves it. You can't invite Jesus because Jesus invites you. You can't make a decision for Christ because Christ has already made the decision. And unless you have the Holy Spirit, you can't put your trust in Jesus. You wouldn't even know what that means. And repeating a prayer that someone else is praying, I did it too. 20 years later, I could finally call myself a Christian, but it had nothing to do with that prayer that I, that, I, that I prayed or repeated. So you see, Paul doesn't mean that the words, Jesus is Lord, can't literally come out of a person's mouth who's an unbeliever. And that's what's so dangerous about these easy believism methods. They produce inflated numbers of people accepting Christ driven by hard-hitting emotional music, followed by hard-hitting emotional messages 
which leads to an emotional response. Because I think you could probably pay just about anybody a hundred bucks and they could say Jesus is Lord. But that's not what Paul means here. He means true, sincere confession that Jesus is Lord. And that's not just declaring with your mouth, but complete submission to his will and lordship accompanied with repentance. Because it's the Lord himself that says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So once again, we see it's not just lip service. It's complete devotion to the Lord that comes from and can only come from the Holy Spirit. That someone would truly proclaim Jesus as Lord and then all the fruit that comes with that proclamation is then visible. So in verse 1, we once again see Paul's love for the Corinthians. He loves them. They are his children in Christ. We've heard, we've heard that um, a few chapters back. He doesn't want them to be ignorant due to the seriousness of this issue. And there's a danger ahead if they're not quick to learn from their past and present mistakes. In verse 2, he reminds them of how lost they once were as pagans. They were totally blind and held captive by their sinful idolatry. However, they had no knowledge of their sin. And, in the, and then in verse 3, he addresses an issue that they had been dealing with and offers a test of discerning what is or is not of the Holy Spirit. Because they are Christians now. Their eyes have been opened and they are without excuse. And I pray all of our eyes have been opened. And if they have, we are all without excuse excuse. Satan's counterfeits are many. They are all around us. And some of them look really good. There's counterfeit gospels. There's counterfeit experiences. There's even counterfeit Christians. The question is, are you partaking in the cup of demons? Are you falling for the schemes of Satan? Are there other gods in your life? Maybe ones that are deep, deeply hidden. If so, are you ready to dispose of them? If so, I would, I would ask that you please come find me after the sermon. Because um, those chains are gone. And you're not alone. We're here for each other and we're family here at Bright Star. And no matter what we face in the world, we have each other. We stand by each other. We love each other. Will you pray with me?